Alrighty, viewers, let's go ahead and get started here. Um, welcome to the Baptist broadcast. So glad that you are joining us. I'm actually going to take these headphones off. I'm not even monitoring, so they're useless. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and get started here. What I want to do is I want to um, give a little bit of a breakdown of Titus 2. Uh, there have been um, many, many authors um, on the Arminian side of things, and particularly in the seeker-sensitive movement, that have written about, spoken about, preached about how we need to make the gospel look attractive um, in the spirit of pragmatism in order to draw as many people as possible into our churches. Um, and, and we refer to that as the seeker-sensitive movement. And uh, the seeker-sensitive movement has been with us for a very long time, um, maybe even since the 17th century or so. So the seeker-sensitive movement, and maybe not the 17th century, that might be a little uh, preemptive, but uh, the 18th century, perhaps, late 18th century after the, uh, the Great Awakening, and especially up through to the Second Great Awakening in the 19th century, the seeker-sensitive movement was uh, was perpetuated in many ways and encouraged in many ways. And uh, the Arminian kind of uh, theological underpinnings of that is, of course, uh, the kind of the, uh, I guess you would say, the unbridled free will of man, a will that is unconstrained, as it were, by any divine forces uh, and, they would go ahead and say, by any uh, natural forces. There is no sense in which we are uh, prohibited or mechanically prevented from uh, doing certain things, or ethically prevented from, for that matter, doing certain things according to our natures. We are, we are free, as it were, to make a choice. Uh, apart from regeneration, uh, prior to regeneration, albeit as a result of having acted properly upon prevenient grace, which everyone has access to. We know the problems with that, okay? So uh, I'm not going to go into the problems with that uh, particular doctrine of prevenient grace, that, that model that they, that they have and assume in, in much of their theology. But uh, I will say that that understanding of uh, soteriology, which is the, the, the really the doctrine of salvation, uh, has led to what we know today to be the, the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, and, and what the seeker-sensitive movement says is that we need to attract the goats. All right, we need to attract the goats. It makes sense to attract the goats because, again, the goats are capable of, of, you know, their, their, their reason is not affected by sin to the extent that they will not, under any circumstances, choose the gospel until God, of course, changes them. Their reason isn't, isn't that inhibited. Um, and you might say that their reason really is, isn't inhibited at all. They still have the power of, of, of choice in an ethical and mechanical sense. Um, and, and, and what that has led to is basically, you know, the ministry philosophy of, well, let's just put something, let's just put something attractive in front of them, uh, and and you know, uh, and then they will come, they will come, they will come to church, 
and then we'll have an opportunity to give them the gospel, and then, of course, they'll make, they can make a free decision for Jesus. And this is where all the crusades have come from, uh, and, and the raise your hand for Jesus, walk down the aisle, um, come down onto the baseball field, you're a Christian now kind of thing, right? This, this uh, wooing people with music, wooing people with flashy lights, use any means necessary that are, of course, not explicitly sinful, in many cases at least, uh, in order to bring these people in. Okay, so that's the seeker-sensitive movement. Now, there have been a lot of authors on the other side, Calvinists, who have written about why Christians are obligated to make the gospel look beautiful, and, uh, and to use the abused term, to make the gospel look attractive. Now, nobody who's written that, I mean, Spurgeon has written about this, uh, 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 George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, you know, some of the most, the, some of the staunchest Calvinists in, in Calvinist history and in Baptist Calvinist history have written about how important it was to make the gospel look beautiful, to make the gospel look attractive. Even the Puritans wrote along this, along this vein, okay? And, um, and the pro the, 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 uh, the, the sad part about that is is that because of the perversity of, of the concept of making something look attractive, um, uh, that, that is often understood to, to, to refer to the seeker-sensitive model when actually it does not. Now, when we say, as Calvinists, this is the understanding that we have, when we say we make the gospel look beautiful or we're obliged to make the gospel look beautiful or attractive or... Um, or gorgeous, or whatever whatever adjective you want you want to to plug in there that that uh, would give off that same kind of sense. Um, what we mean is that we need to show the gospel for what it is. So we, you know we're just kind of using popular parlance uh, to to say that right. Make the gospel look beautiful. Well, of course the gospel is beautiful in and of itself. There's nothing we can do to increase its beauty, right? We might even be able to say, in as much as it's a reflection or a, a, a revelation of who God is, it's infinitely beautiful. Um, and so there's nothing we can do to add to it. What that statement means when a Calvinist writes it is that we live in a way that accurately reflects the gospel, that our lives um, and our behavior and our obedience fits the gospel. And so accurately shows it to those uh, are, who are around us, right? Those who fall within our sphere of influences. And, um, and, and so it's not, it's not saying that, okay, the gospel's not sufficient. We need to make it sufficient. Okay, that would be the seeker-sensitive movement. And by the way, there, there are a range of means that we can use that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on that we can, that we can use to do that with. Uh, anything from laser shows to uh, charismania to fog machines to concerts on stage on a Sunday morning. You know, we can use all of that stuff, just whatever gets the goats in the door, right? That's the seeker-sensitive movement. Well, the Calvinist means, no, we obey, and inasmuch as we obey the scriptures, we make the gospel look beautiful. We make it look attractive. In other words, we make it look like what it is, objectively. Um, when a Christian goes on... Uh, you know, just kind of spouting their devotion to Christ and his gospel, and then their lives look like total garbage. Um, that is actually doing 
something to hinder the gospel. It's actually doing something to um, make the gospel look bad. Uh, this is the whole sum and substance of the second commandment. Thou shalt not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the reason that commandment is so very important is because who are we to do something sinful in the name of God? To do something sinful in, in the name of God is to make God look like not God, right? We are telling other people, we are giving other people a false version of God by virtue of our actions. So too, when we, when we, when we proclaim the gospel and then we go and we live like hell, we are essentially communicating something that's not true about the gospel, namely that this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel allows. This is what the gospel gives license for or something along those lines. And so to the extent that we do that, we actually make the gospel look bad and we, 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 uh, we, we tarnish the reputation, as it were, of the gospel around other people. Um, this is why, for example, there are qualifications in Scripture for elders, that elders are to have a good reputation, not to the point of doctrinal compromise, but are to have generally a good reputation with outsiders. Now, why would we want a good reputation with outsiders? Because if a pastor is preaching the grace of God and then going out and making that grace look, for example, like license to sin, which is contrary to the nature of God, then it's actually... It's actually a, the same thing along the lines of preaching a false gospel, uh, essentially, because you're, you're preaching a false gospel in the way you live. Um, now, you know, uh, Titus 2 is actually probably the go-to text where, where I will buttress this understanding of making the gospel look beautiful and every Christian's obligation to make it look beautiful. We don't make the gospel look beautiful because that is what it is going to take in and of itself to draw sinners to the Lord. We make the gospel look beautiful, firstly and foremostly, because we, we are commanded to do so. Secondly, because God uses that as a means to draw sinners to himself through the true gospel. And if we're not making the gospel look beautiful and we're saying something different or false about the gospel through the way that we live, then we're giving a false message to outsiders, and that's, that's not good because essentially we, we would be implicated in trying to deceive the elect at that point. So, um, Titus 2 uh, is, 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 is one of the greatest source texts for this concept of making the gospel look beautiful in an other-than-seeker-sensitive sense. This is not a seeker-sensitive concept here. Um, uh, so, if you, if you look at Titus 2, and I wish I could pull it up for you here on the screen, but um, I have, uh, I, I'm not able to do that. I'm not set up to do that right now. Um, but if you look at t Titus 2, and I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version, it begins in verse 1 with, But as for you, um, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That, that word for proper, uh, it's the idea of, 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 of speaking things that, um, that befit or become prepai in the Greek, or prepo, um, uh, speak the things which become this gospel. Speak the things which fit this gospel. Speak the things which are consistent with this gospel. And to the extent that you speak the things which are consistent with this gospel, you adorn the gospel. So the, so the whole context of chapter 2, it begins with doing things which befit or become the gospel. We, In, in other words, we 
you know, doing things which actually make the gospel look like what it is, truly and objectively, which is beautiful and attractive. It is objectively attractive. The problem is in man. Man doesn't think it's attractive, of course, because he's a sinner. But really, the gospel is the most beautiful and attractive thing there is. Uh, there's nothing more beautiful and attractive than the gospel. The problem is in man. So, woe is us if we if we deny the attractiveness of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. It is beautiful and attractive. The problem is in man who says the complete opposite of that in his sinful nature. So Titus two one sets up the whole chapter, uh, the whole and, and the and the whole chapter is going to deal with this idea of acting consistently, speaking and acting consistently with what the gospel objectively is. Titus 2.2, 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. Again, behavior that befits the gospel. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. This right here is the kind of behavior you should find in a local church of Christ. Titus 2.4, that they admonish the young women, older women admonishing the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Again, verse 5 shows the concern that our behavior, our attitude, our affections, our practical theology, in other words, would align with what the gospel objectively is, i.e. beautiful and holy. Titus 2.6, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Titus 2.9, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their masters or to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Now, that word for adorn here gets us even closer to this idea of making the gospel beautiful, not pilfering, not purloining, uh, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn Cosmeo, cosmeo, or cosmo, cosmosin, uh, a term that quite literally means to ornament, to adorn, uh, to embellish with honor. Um, uh, it could also mean to, to put in order, to arrange, to make ready, prepare. To sum all that up, you could say to make beautiful, to make the gospel beautiful, to make it... Uh, to, to adorn it with beautiful behavior, consistent behavior to it, and to that extent make it look like what it is that is the most beautiful and attractive thing that has been preached or proclaimed on this planet. Um, so th that is, in a nutshell, and I'm, and I'm not going as, 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 as deeply as I could into this subject, but that is, in a nutshell, the Calvinist view of making the gospel look beautiful. Uh, which is not the seeker-sensitive view. The seeker-sensitive view, again, says use any means necessary um, to, to get people in the door. Uh, and the Calvinist view says, no, this is what the gospel is, therefore we're going to look, or, or we're, therefore we're going to live according to it. 
we're going to live according to it. And in as far as we live according to it, we make it look beautiful. We adorn it. We put ornaments on it, ornaments of obedience on the gospel. And, and, and if we do that, there is nothing objective that an outsider could say to condemn us. There's nothing that they could say that could condemn the gospel. There's nothing that they would be able to say by way of tarnishing the gospel if they're being consistent and honest. All right. So, of course, they can blaspheme the gospel all they want, but it won't be on the occasion of our behavior and our inconsistent witness of it. All right. And, and, and to the extent that that's the case, we are adorning, we're garnishing, we're putting trimmings ornaments of obedience, embellishments of obedience upon the gospel. We're making it look like what it truly, really is in this dark and dying world. So that the scoffers see it and are condemned, and so that those who are God's elect uh, see it and are drawn to Christ, that the Lord would use our obedience in accord with the proclamation of the gospel to draw his elect to himself. And in that sense, the gospel is attractive, it's beautiful, it's, 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 it's set forth as a beautiful gospel by God's people that God would use that as a means to draw people to himself. So, we can say, we can freely say as Calvinists that we are obligated and, and, and should make the gospel look beautiful, that we should adorn it, that it should be made to look attractive to that extent in our lives. Now, we shouldn't make the mistake of letting opponents of the gospel or opponents of the sovereignty of God control the language of the conversation. For many, many years, the habit of evangelical Christians has been to just withdraw from the sphere of discussion and to cede the language to the opponent. Oh, well, they use this word to corrupt this doctrine in this way, therefore we're just not going to use that word. Instead, I think what we should do is we should actually fight back and and recapture the words from them. Uh, we can't let them control the language. If they control the language, then they control everything. Uh, right? What happens when they, you know, plenty of people have used the Trinity in a in a wrong, slanderous, heterodoxical way, the term Trinity, yet we still use it. We should still use it. We shouldn't pull away from using that term just because bad people have used it. So, uh, you know, that term is ours, and that term actually only makes sense within the context of a Calvinistic uh, soteriology. So, hopefully you guys uh, benefit from this. Uh, it, it, hopefully it helped to parse some issues between uh, Arminians and Calvinists and the way that language is used between those two parties uh, and the way that that language really only makes sense in a Calvinistic framework of salvation. God bless.